Mateo, it's great to see you once again. Good to see you as well. So I'm having you back on because you've told me since our last conversation, you've had some shifting of your views on a few different topics, and they were pretty controversial topics, uh, you know, voter ID laws, immigration. But the most notable and the one that we talked the most extensively about was systemic racism. So go ahead and, and tell me where your views have changed, and let's see if we can understand why they've changed and, and how that happened. Yeah, so I don't, I don't want to describe my change as some like drastic change as it is more just like a slight shift in a different direction. So I think if I remember correctly, it's been a little bit, but I think initially I kind of had the perspective of, well, you know, there are historical injustices in oppression that have occurred, but nothing currently is going on that should hold anyone back, right? And everything is equal right now and fair and equality of opportunity is fair. And, you know, anyone complaining about that um, just isn't correct or is making it a bigger problem than it seems, right? And I would say for systemic racism, my, uh, I think the biggest difference is that I, I, I recognize now that it exists to a certain extent. That's mm. what I would say, I think, through, especially in my major sociology, through sociological like research that I've read and looked through, I've kind of realized like, yeah, I, I think I could confidently say that there's some inequalities. It's hard to gauge the uh, prevalence or like, is it massive or is it super small? But I'd say there's enough to warrant some call to action. And last time we talked, a lot of our conversation revolved around the idea of history and to what extent does historical inequality matter in today's world. And more or less our conclusion, your conclusion, was that that is important to know. You want to learn from history, but it doesn't play a key role today. So are you saying that this history, this historical inequality is playing a key role? Or are you saying that, in fact, this isn't simply historical inequality, this is inequality in action today in the 21st century? Uh, that's a good question. I'd, I'd say both. Um, I'd say historical plays a much larger role just due to the gravity of it. Um, literal slavery, literal Jim Crow, you know, all of these things created for um, African Americans or, or Black people of today created a situation where they lacked resources in general. I mean, we could go into specifics of that, right? But the, the most prevailing historical factor was they were enslaved and then they were put under Jim Crow lack of intergenerational wealth mixed with trauma, mixed with all sorts of things doesn't really create great factors for them today, right? So the historical component to me is much larger, of course, because it, it was a much larger example of brutality and oppression um, compared to today where that's not, you, you don't really see that. I, I think it's a different type of, I wouldn't call it like oppression, but it's like, it's a different type of inequality that pervades. So I'd say historically, um, 
much, much bigger factor. Lack of intergenerational wealth is probably one of the biggest indicators for that. Um, lack of uh, societal resources just makes sense why they're in the position they are today. But then I think there are current biases that have continued, unfortunately, that are a little less overt and a little more covert um, that we could delve into as well. So let's delve into those because the historical implications, I think even your average fiscally conservative Republican status quo, just American, right? Your average American would say, yeah, of course there was slavery. I'm not pretending that was fake, right? The average person would say, yeah, there's obviously implications of history. Uh, There's just going to be debate on whether or not any of that, not just effects, but actual actual biases and things like that still exist in any way today. And that's really the conversation. So dig into where you think some of these biases or uh, disadvantages or what have you still exist in practice today? Yeah. So I think, you know, in practice is a, a interesting word because it's really hard to, to, to gauge that. I don't want to come across as like really unsure about this. I, I do believe that there are inequalities that are continuing right now, but in overt practices, I mean, you look at the data, just raw, you know, untamed racism just directed towards people overtly is is gone down you can look at pew research that will ask individuals in america they've done it in europe as well where it's like would you be okay with having a person of color living next door to you and that like from the 1960s to now has gone up dramatically people are generally pretty accepting i believe it's like 80 or 90 percent approval with that and so it's a like on the overt scale um racism isn't really that common and it's it's quite taboo but again as i've kind of delved into my major i've been able to analyze systems you know sociology focuses on systems and institutions and how they relate to individuals and i think there is where there's the problem and the problem is that systems don't radically change you know over short periods of time, I would call a short period of time, 50 years, you know, since the civil rights movement, even with the enactment of colorblind laws and such, I don't believe that systems have changed extremely drastically, you know, and and that's why we're seeing the inequalities today. So for example, there's been some popular studies done regarding, um, callbacks from employers, right, for uh, based on race. So ton of meta-analysis on this, lots of research done where black sounding names got less callbacks than white sounding names, right? Really popular. And to me, that is kind of one of the biggest examples of, okay, we did an analysis of a bunch of different companies. We did an analysis. We don't know the race of the employer. We don't know whatever, but there's some bias there. Like we can't deny that black sounding names are getting less callbacks, even if you account for, you know, neighborhood where they're coming from or income, it's not about class. I mean, they're associating these names with a race and then putting a label on that, right? So they're stereotyping, they're discriminating. You know, whether you want to call that racism or not, it's still a bias form. So I I think studies like those, and they've done those with other companies or other areas, and generally Black people tend to get less attention or less 
um, um, sight from others. Um, and so to me that that expresses one of the biggest problems currently is that we don't have an over racism crisis because it's taboo and it's so taboo in some areas that, you know, tiny little things you say, progressives will get on your ass for that, right? But I think what we have is we have attitudes that have stayed relatively the same without people wanting them to, but biases and attitudes that have unfortunately passed through the last 50 years that have labeled and placed labels upon people of color, black people in painting them in a negative light. So I think that is where I think the structural issues come and that they're treated unfairly on a general level. And that's an interesting point because you're right. Humans suck at understanding time scale. 50 years is not a long time. And what seems to be the case is while there is, yes, I would agree with you, a reduction in overt racism. I think that's obvious. Part of that, I would guess, has to be assigned to a correlative reduction in expressed racism, not because you're less racist, although that seems to be the case as well, but also because of the social implications, the social pressure. There's not many people who, although we obviously have exceptions to this, Ahmaud Arbery's case is, is a great one, who are going to jump in the back of a pickup truck and shoot you. That's not very common, and vigilantism in general doesn't work well in a state that has a functioning police force, assuming we do. That being said, there are obvious issues that you brought forward. For example, callbacks. And the good thing is, in my eyes, there's easy solutions to this. For example, look at the, uh, what is the name of that uh, very well-known uh, orchestra? I cannot remember now. Uh, but point is, orchestras oftentimes will do blind trials. And now you don't have any bias, because even though your racism is not being expressed in some way, if you do hold any kind of prejudice, it's going to be subconscious, and that would restrict that subconscious um, prejudice from expressing itself. But then the problem still arises in the case of these orchestras, where you have now blind hiring practices. There are some cases where that leads to worse outcomes. So how do you, just from what you've been learning in sociology and so forth, how do you grapple with the idea that if in some industries you get more hiring blind, colorblind, because colorblind is no longer the status quo, socially acceptable opinion, now it's cultural acceptance. Well, if you go colorblind still and you have worse outcomes, how do you justify that? Do you have any worries about that? No, I, I definitely do have worries. Um... I think the, so to touch on one specific point, I think progressives would, I don't know if they would agree with blind hiring practices. I think their idea is that we, you know, if it's even possible, we hammer out that implicit bias. Like that's the idea that, you know, some very progressive people are doing, right? Is uh, uh, bias training, you know, and, and such. 
that's the idea behind that is that we shouldn't have to cower behind a wall to finally be able to see someone as equal, right? And we shouldn't have to not see them to see them for who they are. We should be able to, um, we should be able to get past that bias. But I, I know that's a somewhat impossible task. If you've ever taken, there's like a Harvard implicit bias test online you can take. I actually took it. And I, I think to be like fairly progressive, like an understanding, and I still leaned towards European, like naturally, right? So it kind of interesting. But anyway, to the point, um, I, I think there are some issues there. It, it depends on the gravity of the difference. Like if it's really if the company really goes under because you know they hired X, Y, and Z, or if the efficiency really drops or the the cohesion really drops, I sure maybe if it was that drastic, we could start talking about okay, maybe maybe we should we should talk about this more. But in my mind, I don't know if there'd be that much of a difference in value, even if some cohesion is lost. Um, I don't know if that would particularly bother me. I guess, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think that'd be too much of a concern. It really depends. Like I need an example to go off of, to be like, okay, well this really messed it up because they hired this person that shouldn't have been hired. Um, but in terms of culture, cause you did bring up culture. That's I think a, another issue is that there, there are work cultures that are created, especially in corporate atmospheres, for example, that when they do see like a black person that's applying they're going to assume and i i did read something on this in one of my classes where like corporate atmospheres corporate um hiring experiences like they seek commonality with the person that they want to hire right it's almost more than their credentials it's like how do they get along with this person do they see themselves like going to the golfing range with this person do they see themselves you know developing a bond and with a lot of people of color they were denied or hiring managers express that they just didn't feel that connection because of cultural differences or because of expectations or assumptions. So there, there are questions there to be asked about, do we change the hiring culture? Because maybe that's a problem. Maybe this bias and discrimination is a result of simple hiring practices that are a little outdated or meant to serve the in-group or the majority and the out group are those who act a little different or who you know may act black or who act whatever, right? May not have a fair chance. But in terms of your original question, I don't know of any specific examples where that was a massive problem to where it caused like a company to fall or everything you know, to just tumble down like dominoes. So it, it wouldn't bother me too much, I don't think. Hiring practices is a really interesting case because there are evolutionary psychological reasons to prefer people who are like you, your in-group. It's just innate within us. Can you hammer that out? I'm not convinced one way or another. Uh, but if you can, it's going to be slow nonetheless. So then it leads us with two options. Do you have more human intervention? And maybe you have three hiring managers and they're all different races, and also not just race here, this conversation applies to socioeconomic status and um, background and hobbies. I mean, you hire people based on a number of reasons. 
You can either go that route, have a bunch of hiring managers, and it's all a slower process, but then you also have potential biases, obviously, in that system, or you go automated. But then when you automate HR, which is done often on entry-level internship applications and things like that, you have no idea why you were rejected, and you don't know what happens behind the scenes. It feels inhuman, regardless of your race or your credentials, and you never really know if it's real or if the job was just posted because... It's against the law to hire someone internally without posting it first, in some cases, things like that. It doesn't strike me as having an obvious solution one way or the other. Yeah, um, you bring up a good point with automation because, I mean, you know what happens if the automation provides an outcome we don't like either, right? We can't expect the automated industry to produce perfect results that we like as well. It, it may lean one way or the other. It could lean towards, you know, white majority or person of color majority. It, it often seems like it's impossible to find that nice line. But what, what you mentioned is interesting in terms of the hiring process, having like different raced hirers um, kind of brings in the idea of diversity quotas, you know, and are those useful? Are they just kind of a woke tool to just like, you know, appear progressive or is that actually helpful? Because I could, I could see having multiple different race and ethnicity um, hirers. It could help to create a more equal atmosphere. Um, but then yes, you get into the issue of, especially like in a corporate corporate atmosphere where everyone needs to adopt certain like rules if you get different cultures mixing, I mean, how do you deal with that, right? And that's a that's a bigger, broader question that is difficult and we're having difficulty in this country dealing with because we have so many different cultures, so many different ethnicities that we respect. We don't wanna, you know, crush them out. But um, I think that's the ultimate question. So I'm, I'm not here trying to claim that like hiring practices are inherently racist and all these things. I think it all comes from a good place um, it's just the way we've set up our societies that, yeah, we, we, we like what's similar to us and we like what seeks to be similar to us. So if a black person, for example, like leaves their hood and they become one with like, you know, the white corporate world, you know, then they're, they're the success. Right. And we like that. And that's great. But if they don't do that, then we kind of are like, what are you doing? You know, what, what's wrong with you? Or you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. And so there, there are questions to be had about, do we, that's why people are saying, do we restructure society? Do we change all these things? Um, but anyway, I'm kind of beating a dead horse here. It just reminds me of that controversy a few years back of that face app where you could change yourself to look old or young, but most controversial is beautiful. Because the more people who use the app in the Western world that's predominantly, you know, white, European, whenever you made yourself more beautiful, it would lighten your skin, elongate your, your facial features. And it was obviously problematic, but not because there was a person controlling it. There's no human behind the scenes who says, oh, this algorithm is going to have some kind of output that is European because that's my favorite. It wasn't that. It was just based on the societal collective responses that it fine-tuned itself into what society viewed as more attractive in this case. So even hiring practices, even if you 
are able to find what on the surface seems to be the perfect uh, equitable formula that doesn't require a hiring manager, but it still produces you know, equal opportunity and at least at the beginning, equal outcome, if that's what you're in favor of, fine. But then what happens when your society isn't 100% split between every race and between every applicant and between every, every gender and what have you? You're going to have dangerous outcomes in this case, right? So it's just something that whenever I see it talked about, this one, let's just say, case of hiring, it's never talked about in a way that's nuanced enough, it seems. It's always, no, history is the most important thing. We're never going to be be equal. And it's not patronizing to say that minorities you know, are worse off because they're always going to be worse off. That's just reality. Or the other side where you hear, no, everyone's equal. The law says so. History can be forgotten about at this point. That's the general you know, rough edges. But neither of those solve the question. I don't think the pendulum needs to swing any more one way or the other on the on the, uh, you know, uh, x-axis here. It's like we need a z-axis to intervene. We need a new, more nuanced conversation to solve this. And I don't really know where that's being had. I mean, feel free to disagree if your courses seem to be approaching this fairly nuanced. But my political science courses I took a couple years back, they certainly were not. It was just whatever the, you know, uh, department chair thought was most reasonable. And that's what was taught. And it was always one side or the other, from my experience. Yeah, I mean, I'd say the social sciences tend to to lean left, um, and so you're you're never going to fully get an unbiased picture. Now, granted, I mean, there's a few reasons why they probably lean left. One of those is that maybe the research that they're finding continually uh, supports those hypotheses, progressive hypotheses, right? Um, but it's true that there does need to be room for disagreement. And in my major, I've found that there are a lot of taken for granted, right? Like there are a lot of assumptions that are said or maybe not assumptions, you know, my my professors, they've worked in their field for decades. They, they know a lot more than me, right? Um, but I'd like those things to be fleshed out more, right? So like if I am, I've taken gender classes, I've taken um, studying history of gender and studying where these theories have come from and why they've developed today. And like, for example, a granted taken would be like patriarchy, right? As like a form of society today that's developed and not necessarily that I like fully disagree, but it's more of like, can we flesh that out, right? But I get they have course schedules and they have, you know, curriculum to get through. Um, but I think focusing on the the groundwork, because I, I don't want to go into a class and just be like nodding my head the entire time, right? I want to be like, hmm, I'm not sure about that. Okay, maybe. And then maybe sometimes being like, yes, I agree, right? Um, and it doesn't seem like you find that that much. So I'd say that's a small critique of my major and probably a lot of other social science courses, not hard sciences. I don't really think hard sciences find themselves in these like political uh problems but um yeah it's that question of like well you're getting to this assumption or i'm sure this assumption is based on a lot of theory and research and all these things can we talk about that like i really want to get more into that and so i'd say that's one of the bigger problems is that i hesitate to ask those questions because you know i'll derail the the lecture or i'll uh, maybe some people will be like what you know what 
you don't really, you don't like accept that immediately. Um, even though I agree with a lot of what they're saying. So there's, there's definitely issues there of discourse um, that I wish was more present, but at the same time, again, I don't think it's nefarious. I don't think the department head is like, yes, you know, good, these children are being taught this, or these college students are gonna come out thinking this way. It's more of like, we have this thing we gotta teach. We want people to come our, to our school and learn what's the most efficient way to do that, cost-effective, and go from there. So conversations like these are, you know, important to have, and I wish more of them happened on a, a college level, that's for sure. You should try, uh, I know you don't have a lot of time left in your college degree, but you should try derailing a couple conversations. I remember, um, I don't know if it was a couple years ago, it must have been, I had a class on uh, political psychology, really nice professor, uh, a lot of things were presented from a research perspective, a lot of data, which I really appreciated. But we had a whole unit a few weeks long, I don't recall if I mentioned this to you, that was basically teaching us uh, a term, new racist, which meant if you didn't support affirmative action, you're a racist. And I was that guy. I stopped the class and I said, hey, real quick, uh, I'm going to guess a lot of people in this world would disagree with that. Can we support this claim just so everyone has some context here? And the potential side effect of what you're saying, this efficiency of learning was, no, we're not going to get into that. You're just going to have to accept it and move forward. And it was a little bit frustrating. I mean, I can look past the semantics of what you call somebody. Do I think new racist is a great way to describe some large minority of the U.S. population? Probably not very good for unifying a country, but I can look past that from a semantic level. But to your point, with that efficiency, uh, unfortunately, there is also some downsides of, of inability for interjection and discourse and things outside of some niche classes like I had a free speech and dangerous ideas class you were allowed to interject pretty often but that's kind of the point of the class right so so you're right uh, you know it's not going to be perfect but there is obvious reasons why you're going to have certain biases and uh, correlations with certain education levels of professors and and things like that uh, but this talk on on race uh, racism and so forth parallels our conversation and is intertwined with our conversation around critical race theory, something which, since our last conversation, I've been looking into a little bit myself, and I know your views may have changed slightly. Um, I've learned that this talking point is a little bit more of a media talking point than it is a real one. I don't know how many schools are actually implementing this. It seems to be quite a bit less than than everyone's making a fuss about. But nonetheless, um, where were your views at and how have they changed, if at all, since our last talking? Yeah, so when I came in last time and I talked about it, I had read some of the the material of critical race theory itself, originally critical legal theory, so it's, you know, philosophical political theory. It's it's like it's not easy to read. It's kind of um a drudge to read um to be honest and the way of change is that I I think previously you know, I had just read its material. So I'm coming into this podcast and I'm like, this is crazy. Like it's saying all these things, like it's so whack. And it's like, sure, there are a lot of questionable things that it says, right? But with the, the context now, I've mellowed out a little, right? 
I still think what I read was a little strange. There's a few things mm-hmm. I agree with. Um, but in this, in, in this landscape, I'm not really that afraid of it. I think that's where I've shifted my point to. So sure, true critical race theory in its theory discusses reaching to academia and trying to implant its ideas there. And it's looking to, you know, rewrite the system and whatever. And it has in some ways, sure. But the critical race theory that, you know, the original authors are writing about and what's presented now is it's gone through so many it's like you know the translation of the bible or something right it's gone through changes there are differences than the og there are differences than in any translation so if you have like critical race theorists like ibram x kendi or um uh, robin d'angelo right who wrote white fragility it's like they're not critical race theorists they've just drawn from some of its ideas so what we're getting now is a really watered down version of it which doesn't really make me that afraid. And if we're talking about teaching it on the collegiate level, I'm not too concerned. People should be old enough to read something and be like, okay, you know, I can understand that or I can't. I think it would be taught respectfully. Granted, there's some, you know, psycho uh, college institutions out there that, you know, will teach anything and everything relating to it and the students, you know, are kind of crazy. Um, but for the most part, I'm not too concerned if it was taught at a college level, teaching the theory itself, but I don't care. And when it comes to, uh, yeah, the big boogeyman in elementary schools, you know, going to haunt your children. It's like, again, that's not critical race theory. You know, there are some instances I've seen a few individual instances where there was a book that was in a children's library it's it's not even like oh like they're forcing the kids to read this book it's like it just happened to be in the library right but he was talking about whiteness and that concept comes from this which comes from this which stems from critical race theory and it's like sure but i have yet to see widespread like examples of children being told that they suck for being white and they should be doing all this stuff right um and so that that's kind of where i'm at i think again i'm in the middle because I don't want, you know, I wouldn't want my kid being told that he should feel bad for being white, right? But at the same time, legislation proposed, what was it, like in Florida or somewhere, where in the law, I read the bill, and it's like, if any white student is made to feel uncomfortable for his race, then this would violate this law. And it's like, that is so vague. A student could feel uncomfortable for X number of reasons in a class. How are you going to enforce that, right? Or in another bill that was proposed, I think one of them was like, we'll monitor classrooms and see if teachers are teaching this. And if so, then we can fine the teacher $1,000 or something. It's like, I think you're, you're responding a little bit too harshly to this, right? And there are concerns to be made, but I don't think teaching about slavery is wrong. I don't think teaching about civil rights movements or Jim Crow's wrong. I don't think teaching the raw details of it, you know, teaching about the Tulsa massacre. I like, I think kids maybe, okay, maybe not like, you know, third grade, but like, I think middle schoolers should be learning about this stuff. I think middle schoolers, high schoolers, whoever, they should be learning about the good and bad in this country. And I'm not really all about that patriotic, like, outlook of, like, we got to teach about all these wonderful things. I don't really care that much. I don't have that much allegiance to this country. I was 
born in Japan, lived all over. This country isn't really my home. So I can't say that, right? But like, I could understand why other people could, but I just, I don't think it's, it's not that big of a deal. We'll see where it goes. I think the term fragility is an interesting one here because it's one that we talked about a lot in our last conversation around kids being fragile and you need to uh, prepare them for the road rather than prepare the road for them and so forth. But this seems to be an interesting word that applies to critical race theory conversation across the board because obviously with the book White Fragility, on one hand you see, look, liberals are saying you know white people are being too fragile, this is history. I'm not saying you have to remove the 4th of July, but also this is what the 4th of July means for somebody who's who wasn't a citizen when it first happened or something like that, right? You can have these kinds of arguments, but it's always saying the right needs to stop being so fragile, which is interesting because the right generally uses this term to say, well, the left is so fragile and, and you know, uh, offended by everything. And there's a lot of truth to that, too. So it's kind of interesting how this fragility has turned into a, I don't know what to call it, a, a cross-cultural unifying force in some sense. We should unify by how dang fragile we are and then fix it together. Maybe that'll be our solution because, yeah, it is it is strange. And, and honestly, I have been really struggling here. Maybe I'm just not looking in the right places. Maybe you can point me in the right direction. I don't even know what K-12 through critical race theory, quote-unquote, would be teaching that's different. Like, for example, I went to school in Oklahoma, learned about slavery, learned about the basics, but unless my memories are serving me wrong, I didn't know about the Tulsa massacre, and it was in Oklahoma, right? That seems pretty screwy, but I knew the Trail of Tears ended there, and we, we learned a lot about Native Americans and how they were massacred, and like this real things that you would think were important to history, and they are. And that's often how people are describing critical race theory. But if in my Oklahoma education I can get most of that, and you know their education system is not top of the line, then what actually are they bringing to the table for K through 12? Do you know what's actually different in these? Um, you know, I, I honestly don't. I am in a, I'm in a sociology of education class right now, actually, and we'll be covering critical race theory um, later on in the semester. So, you know... I would know then because we'll we'll dive into that. We're going mm -hmm. into just current curriculums right now, but um, yeah, as of right now, I I don't know particularly. I I, I have a feeling, kind of like you mentioned, it's a little more of you know realistic history that they're wanting to push. So um, in some education systems, I would assume the South, especially. Um, in some cases, slavery, like in textbooks, is just regarded as like a bad thing that some whites did or something. You know, like in, in some textbooks, it's it's sugarcoated slightly. I think that would be where it would be most applicable is saying, hey, you know, we should change this a little bit. But other than that, I, I, I do get part of the side that's like what are you really going to change you know what what's the real difference because then you get instances of like we're going to teach the concept of whiteness to students right or we're going to teach the concept the, these like comp complex political concepts 
that I don't know if a kid could fully understand that. I, I think it's important to teach your kids about biases and race, like when they're younger, I think that's okay. But, you know, where, where does that, where do you draw that line? What does it involve? I wish I was more knowledgeable. Um, and you're gonna prompt me uh, to do some more research because I, I do wanna look into what's going on because there's such harsh reactions from these states that makes me think, okay, there, there must be like teaching something horrible to these students or something's going on when in reality, on the other side, they're saying, oh, we just wanna teach history you now. So I wish I could talk more on that. I'll know more later in the semester as I'll go into it in one of my classes, but um, right now it's a boogeyman. I, I don't know what it entails at all. I'm not convinced anybody knows what it entails i'm not convinced politicians know what it entails it's really this is one of those conversations we have an in increasing number of these today which is quite unfortunate and you know for example voter id laws or immigration which uh, we'll get into in a minute because i know your views have shifted there but i don't know anybody i could ask anybody progressive conservative independent and 99 times out of 100 i could say what actually is the critical race theory that we're going to be teaching in K through 12. Not do you support it, but what's actually changing, has changed, or will change. Nobody's going to know the answer to that, which is making this conversation really, really piss poor. Now, I'm sure there's some instructors and policymakers behind the scenes who actually know this, but there's been a breakdown, kind of like there was in early COVID, a breakdown of disseminating information because we're not actually forming opinions on reality. We're forming opinions on what our sex group has said reality is and then forming an opinion based on that perception which it gets into a, a bigger issue which we don't have to get into of just social media and the danger of in-grouping and things like that but uh that on the similar terms though this applies to something like voter id laws not many people really know the intricacies of it and maybe there's not any maybe i'm just assuming there's more nuance than there actually is but it seems to me it's you have one one side of the aisle says everyone should be able to prove they're a citizen. This is obvious. And the other side of the aisle says, well, didn't you know they already did whenever they signed up? So where is uh, where have you changed your opinions on this based on what you've learned? Yeah, I mean, again, for me, so I, I base I think I base a lot of my viewpoints on just general wellness for people right so if there's a certain policy that benefits people on a general term for the better i'm in support of it so when i think of voter id it's hard because i understand the argument of like well you know you have to show id to do x y and z and it's it should just be something normal I also get the idea of like, well, you know, there are severe limitations that some people have to proving, you know, their citizenship, or maybe they can't afford it. People will counter and say, well, it's not that expensive to get it. It goes back and forth along the aisle. Bottom line is for me, I looked up the rates of um, like driver's licenses or just photo ID for races. And it looks like most people can get one, right? So like for Black people, it was like 86% had one, right? 
And then for white and Hispanic, it was upwards of like 90 something percent. So black people are a little more disenfranchised. So I could understand arguments being made that like black people don't attain them as much and as often, and therefore um, could be, you know, the, the Democratic Party, which black people mostly vote for, could be losing votes, could be a little unfair in that regard, but also it could just be unfair to people who do want to voice their opinions. What it boils down to for me is I don't really care what's done with them. If people want voter ID enacted, all I ask then is that, I mean, I guess it'd have to be a federal mandate, basically. Um, you have the USPS, you know, deliver you one for free and you go from there. Like if they if they really want voter ID enacted, then you got to provide one to everyone and free of charge. Get them in and out, do it and give them it. OK, sure. Then you've tried and you've done that. And it, it doesn't seem like it's voter suppression to me. In some cases that I've, I've noticed in some legal cases, it does seem like some states, you know, who went to the Supreme Court have been targeting people of color for voter suppression due to voter ID because again, 80 something percent of black people may have a, uh, according to the statistic may have a ID, but it depends on region and area and city. And some cities have notorious lack for voter ID. So it can make for some conflicting political situations when it comes to um, elections, right? So in the end, it's like, all right, if you do want voter ID and you're very supportive of it, provide everyone one for free. And if people don't want it, then that's fine, whatever, I don't care. But um, another thing I do is probably make it a national holiday too. One or two days off during the week, then what's the excuse, right? Like at that point, it's like, you've done all you can. People can't call you, you know, uh, a suppressing, you know, party anymore. People can't like, it's really that simple. And I'm confused why they haven't gone down that route of like, well, okay, fine, we'll provide you that and we'll make it a federal day off. There's no excuse now for people not to be able to vote. So in my opinion, I'm pretty supportive of, any decision that's made, I do not, and I have not found any solid evidence that voter ID actually prevents fraud. Um, other than individual cases, I've not found substantial evidence to support that. So I can't support it for that reason, but I can't support it on just the, the, the moral basis of like proving that you are a citizen. But at the same time, I'm kind of like, that's a little redundant sometimes if it's not really preventing fraud. I'm of the belief that there are things that need to change. Making a national holiday might be one of those cases. But my personal opinions aside, am I being too cynical in feeling that the intentionality behind this conversation has nothing to do with who can vote for the sake of their liberties and has everything to do with if more people vote, Democrats get more winning, and if less people vote of these minorities, Republicans get more winning. And I hate to think that it's just race-based electioning here. Am I, but am I too cynical in thinking that that is really the only reason, or at least the primary reason, this is actually on our agenda? I mean, let's be honest here. We don't have a great track record for, you know, commendable politicians or parties. And I don't want to segue this into immigration too quick, but that's that's the main argument, not main argument, but, that, but that's a big argument for reduced immigration is that 
immigrants come in, they generally vote Democratic, while Republicans are going to lose and be out of the majority for a long time, right? Like, when it gets to that point, I tune out because I'm like, well, that's just a problem bigger than me. And they're just fighting amongst themselves for whatever power they can gain. And I guess that gives traction for me to say that I'm kind of tired of a two-party system and we may be able to, to solve a lot of issues without that, you know. But um, no, I, I wouldn't say you're being cynical. I'd say that's a large part of that and a lot of issues. It comes to power, political power. Um, and it makes you question the very foundation of, you know, do these people actually care or are they just seeking votes? It's a question as old as time. But. This is why conservatives in America win more than you would think. They win a lot. And I would say the reasoning is that the Republican Party, which is conservative today, doesn't have an expectation of change. It's not trying to unify the outcomes among racial barriers and sexual barriers. It's it's saying we've reached a point where I'm fairly comfortable. Yeah, we're going to have small changes here and there, maybe change the tax code, whatever. But I'm more or less satisfied. Let's see if we can just live a good, happy life. And the progressives, you know, Democratic Party today would say, no, no, no. We're not even moving the, the, the pendulum. The, I mean, we have so much work to do that we're basically still enslaving people, if you think about it. Like, we have so much change to do. And to one hand, on a two-party system level, is totally not functional because you end up just having a split Congress and then you change presidents. They swing every couple terms and then you just, oh, I'm leaving the Paris Agreement. Oh, well, I'm back in the Paris Agreement. And then Trump wins again in a couple years. Oh, well, we're leaving it again and nothing ever happens. But if nothing ever happens, the right, generally speaking, is okay. The left is losing in some sense. So I always wonder, and maybe immigration is an interesting point here. Again, how can I not be cynical if you say, well, look, conservatives have an easier road to victory. I need black people to vote. I need as many immigrants in this country as possible to win an election. You see what I'm saying? And I, I really, we can get into immigration here because I know, again, I think your views may have changed a bit. We've talked, talked a little bit here. It's hard not to be cynical around so many of these topics that are, ironically enough, trying to help fix racism while seemingly being immensely patronizing to the minorities of this country. Yeah, I, I could see how people are kind of treated like pawns. Minorities can be treated like pawns by the Democratic Party as a means to, to achieve what they want because you can, you can look at the, the results. Um, most minorities in whatever color are going to vote Democrat, which is kind of an interesting insight in its own. I've always wanted to kind of understand why. Um, but either way, yeah, when it comes to immigration, just to, to get my view out there, I don't think it's changed an extreme amount as it is more maybe I've become a little quite more progressive when it comes to it. I'm pretty, I'm not like open borders or anything, but I'm supportive of, um, you know, giving citizen, giving citizenship to um, illegal immigrants. I don't really care that much, um, particularly about that. Anything that benefits the economy, I, I think is good for America. And so looking at the stats, they immensely contribute to it. 
Um, but you you then, yeah, you come into problems of the Republican Party saying, well, you know, then they're all going to start voting Democrat and they're whatever. Sure. I just I don't particularly care about the Republican or Democratic Party when they say that it's hard to sympathize with them and be like, oh, I'm so sorry for that. You know, you're going to lose all these votes. It's like, well, I mean, I haven't seen anything impressive coming from the Republican Party in the last, I don't know, since I was born, I suppose. And so for me, I don't know. I mean, I'm a college student right now. Anything that helps me, we're, we're all a little selfish, right? Anything that helps me and maybe helps others, I'm supportive of. So immigration is really not too large of an issue. Everything comes with a, I guess like every push comes with a poll. You have immigrants coming in, they may take jobs, sure. Um, they're going to get old. They'll, you know, put more burden on social social security. I'm taking an aging class right now. And what we're going through is basically how our generation is going to have like no social security when we get old. Right. Um, the whole issues there, like there's, there's a push and pull everywhere. I guess I think like now and within 10 years though, and I'm like, well, all these issues right now, 10 years from now, I could see my opinion on them being relatively the same as long as it supports me and my generation and whatever. And so immigration isn't too much of a concern. If there's people out there who are like, well, you know, we have Hispanics now moving to our, into our neighborhoods and we have these things and that, and Hispanics are taking these jobs. It's like, I, I sympathize, but um, I don't, I don't know if that will shift my view that much. And so I, I, I assume my view to stay relatively the same, which is I'm very supportive of it. My grandparents were immigrants. So, you know, that's how it goes. It seems that it's possible, if you look at it in just the right lens, that, again, to use the two-party language here, which I also don't like, I, I wish you had ranked voting and all of these kinds of things we don't have to get into, but this party of big business, or small business and big business, just business generally, businesses need jobs right now, so hell, if an immigrant's going to work for you, might be a pretty pro-business move to be in favor of immigration. Now, this applies more to southern states, presumably maybe Texas, but I don't know. I think we could find some unifying ground here, some some expediting of citizenship processes uh, if you do require them to be citizens. Um, some companies don't require you to be a citizen. I mean, I know people who, who aren't citizens, uh, very nice people, very productive, but not going to be voting, obviously. Um, so I think there's some... Again, some unifying ground to be had here, some, even from a cynical approach, mutual benefit to your business, to the people leaving their country, probably for a reason. I don't know how many people leave a country for no reason. It seems like a lot of an investment, right? So they're probably here for some humanitarian reason or just better options, better opportunities. Uh, and if they have an opportunity to work at your company that's understaffed and can't find people, well, it seems like it, it helps everybody out there. You know, I think there's more unifying ground here, but again, who, what, name the news media who's presenting this in this way. I mean, go ahead. This isn't a rhetorical. I'd love for you to list off your top five favorite mainstream media channels that present a nuanced conversation about any topic. I mean, you won't get that and you're not going to get that for a long time. I suppose like BBC European, you know, network is like, not half bad at presenting issues 
generally, but anything in the United States is going to be relatively polarizing just because it gets views, right? And it, it cultivates a, a base, right? It cultivates a group that you feel a part of. So, you know, you watch Fox News. Well, now you're a part of a network of how many million Americans, mostly old, um, who believe this similar idea it makes you feel good, right? It makes you feel like a part of a team and, you know, you're fighting for the right thing and whatever. And the same for CNN or being on, I, I don't know, to me, you're not really going to find, oh, I guess that's, that's the problem, is that you're not going to find unbiased outlets, right? But I th don't think it's common for these outlets to just report outright lies, right? So the way that I see it is that you can get a decent understanding about something if you just go to a bunch of outlets, read their articles, piece it together, and come to like a general conclusion. Because all of them are going to have different takes on things. They'll use different verbs and different adjectives to describe things, right? But they're all going to tell a similar story. They're not usually, especially being so big, they're usually not going to just outright lie about something that occurs. Um, and so because of that, when you can piece stuff together, I think that that's how I do it, at least, is I just read a bunch of different articles from Fox or CNN or whatever. Um, and that gives me a nice idea. And if they link a study or they link something that I'll compare studies, I'll read it, I'll look, okay, see, a lot of the time I've found that they misread them or they, you know, show what they want to show, but not lying. It's more misleading, but you can find truth in those so yeah there's no outlet out there that's going to be having a civil discussion on immigration but it's 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 a game you know it's it's a puzzle you know you get little puzzle pieces through each media outlet and then you piece that together through work you got to do work you got to go to these sources you got to you know do your own research and then you can piece together a general idea of what's going on and i mean i'd say that's how i do it you're not going to find any other better outlet, at least that I've found. I would like to say I agree with you that it's all just different takes on a story. And in some way, you just find, like you said, you find the pieces that are the same across all the stories, the overlap, and that's the reality of it. But this, quote, controlling of the narrative to make money for one perspective or another, I think has gotten to the point of lying in some cases. And I worry it's only going to get worse. And I don't say this just off gut feelings. You look at, let's take a liberal approach here, maybe MSNBC or CNN coverage. Chris Cuomo quarantined in his basement. That happened several months ago. The dude was out running around, and people just took pictures of him. And then he went on news the next day and was like, look, I'm still in my basement. And then you have, on the right, Fox News, whenever um, Ted Cruz in Congress said that January 6th protest was an insurrection or, or whatever he said, uh, terrorist, I think was the word he used. And he went on Tucker Carlson just to have Tucker tell him, no, 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 this is why you said that. I disagree with how you're answering my questions. Here's actually what you thought. And just pestered him until he got him to submit to his own, to Tucker's own agenda. And I was like, I was thinking to myself, this is actually lying. I mean, to your point, maybe this isn't common. Mostly you can just piece together the overlap. But I'm finding more and more cases, and it's possible I'm just looking harder, and these are just anomalies. I don't know. I mean, I'll admit some ignorance there. But those are just two cases of, this is not true. You're speaking for me, 
or you're not in your basement. This is just lying on face value, and we're just going to pretend it didn't happen. Um, so I just worry that that is the future of our dialogue, and I don't want to say it is because then you get stuck in the trap of alternative media that, look at the Daily Wire, has 100 employees. It's like the number two viewed organization on all of Facebook. It's not really alternative at this point. Joe Rogan gets as many viewers as Tucker Carlson, the bigger, the biggest newscast in America. So I don't want to get stuck in the I'm in the alternative media and I'm better than you kind of mindset. But it's really, really difficult to know what's real. And I, I would even push back a little bit. I'm not even able to tell the overlapping pieces in many cases unless I look really hard. And the energy cost of that is probably too high to side with the American public here. It's got to be too high for everyone to just go out of their way and spend three hours every morning figuring out what the hell's real. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, so that that begs the question of, you know, what's our responsibility? How do you responsibly come to conclusions in this day and age with so much information? Our brains aren't meant to, to comprehend this much and be able to, you know, while juggling other things we have relationships we have jobs we have hobbies and now we have a whole subsection dedicated to our politics you know which i mean everyone needed to be involved in politics to some extent at the creation of this country everyone has to vote everyone has to have an opinion on something but it's become so so complicated now where i mean also another thing i've noticed is that like you can't really disagree, like if you ascribe yourself to a certain stance or political party or whatever, you have to like agree with everything that they present or else you, you can't disagree with one thing or else you're still outcasted. I feel like before it's like you could have some nuance, you know, here and there. I mean, granted, I didn't live, you know, beyond 20 years ago, but I would think there was a little more nuance or at least a little more discussion to some extent. I just think social media, as you've mentioned, has brought this type of behavior out that rewards in-grouping and rewards um, being cohesive because that's what's comfortable to us as humans. And it does not reward questioning or disagreeing with something, right? So. If I wanted to align myself with the conservative party, but I said that I absolutely despise Trump and I listed off policies that I didn't like and whatever, I would be outed, right? Even though I was conservative or if I was progressive, but I said I really did not like Hillary Clinton as a candidate or whatever, I'd be outed as kind of different because that's just not what you do. You support that, right? So. I mean, we live in a society, right? We live in a society nowadays where dissent is something that now people can like ascribe to your character. Like you're the person who dissented to that. Oh, mm -hmm. okay. Or your, your politics are this way. Well, I'm just not really going to want to associate with you. And I get the idea behind that. I get the idea that our politics are intertwined with values, but how much blame can we really put on people for the things they believe? Like I look at some of the January 6th attendees, some of them, like you can, you can view their, uh, their, cause they went to jail and then they were interviewed by detectives or whatever. And, you know, you can watch them ramble about all this crazy stuff. It's like, this person was probably a sane person at some point. This person 
but how do they get to that point? How much blame can we really ascribe to people when we live in a time where information is so hard to come by that's legitimate, you know, disinformation is everywhere. I, I don't know. Like to me, I don't really blame people that much when they do, for example, if they really do hardline support Trump, I'm like, I, I disagree, but I'm never, I'm never gonna to get on your case for that because I know there's some reason why you got into that, that belief. Like there's something behind that. And the power behind social media and behind these movements is insane. It makes sense why people would do that. So back to the, the original idea, it's ridiculous. All of this is ridiculous. I don't, I mean, yeah, it's true. There is some line that occurs and, and I know there is. Um, it's just, I guess you gotta trust something at some point, right? Um, what do you trust though? That's the question. I think one policy voting, and I've said this a lot, one policy voting is often the issue here that if, you know, to your point about in-grouping, if you don't follow our one piece of policy, you know, let's say you're conservative and then it t turns out you're actually not big on guns, but you're Christian, you're you, you support American values, you're patriotic, but you just, something about guns rub you the wrong way, maybe you had a bad event, trauma as a kid, whatever, doesn't really matter, nah, you're different than us, right? And in some respect, every person I've talked to on this podcast, uh, and for whatever reason in my brain, I assumed every person in the world recognizes this. We all know we're all kind of being manipulated, we're all, you know, I, I'm, we're all smart enough to know there's something cynical happening, we just all think we're on the right side of the of the cynicism argument, right? We just assume we're the good guys. But then I talked to somebody the other day, just a you know, as a coworker of mine, and they were more or less ranting about how awesome this heuristic of one policy voting was. It was super random, and it struck me as something I have never disagreed with more in my life. And I was like, hold on. Have I been wrong about everything I just said? Does the average person prefer this heuristic of, well, no, I like, pick a thing, I'm Christian, or I like guns, or on the other side of the argument, I'm pro-choice. Does the average person like that level of subgrouping into these, uh, into these increasingly radicalized groups that despise one another? Is that innate within us and we just didn't access it because we were always so nice and trying to be civilized and technological advancement and medicine it all brought us together right all of our values were overlapping but now that life is sedentary enough and good enough we can realize our true innate you know human psychology it's being expressed in some way do you think that's conspiracy for me to say that it's probably it's possible that i'm actually wrong in thinking we all know we're being duped and in reality, it's not doublethink, it's just actual, our minds are actually being convinced and we just truly believe that the other side is totally wrong and I shouldn't give people that much benefit of the doubt. Well, I mean, I guess it depends what, you know, truly believing the other side to be wrong is because, yeah, I mean, I'd follow, I generally follow the idea that that these people are being manipulated. I don't think someone comes to that. And I don't think that's an inherent truth that someone can find 
that yes, I believe this one single thing and I'm going to despise anyone else. I don't, I mean, it's not logical, right? So to me, I can't support that line of thinking. These people exist, right? But there's gotta be reason for how they they got into that hole in the first place. Um, and you know, it, it, it makes, it does make me question because you hear about these people all the time, especially on the internet, but it's really hard to meet them. Like it's hard to define them who are so holden, right? But then you hear about them, oh, you know, Uncle Jim is doing this thing or Aunt Sally is thinking this or your cousin does this. So they're so far away, but so close to you at the same time that, I mean, I don't know, the way I see it, I have cousins who like voted for Trump super into Trump apparently, but I'd love to have like a one-on-one -on -one discussion with them and why they support building the wall or why they support, you know, all those things and what brought them down that line. And I think what you'll find is that it wasn't just one little policy. It wasn't one little thing. It was a collection of things that I don't even people, I don't even think people themselves have realized yet. Again, we're all being manipulated in some ways. We're all being impacted. And it's not, I'm not saying it's a, it's like, I guess, maleficent or, you know, I guess, infamous uh, manipulation where someone behind is like pulling the strings and trying to convince people of doing things. It's like we go throughout our life experiencing environmental factors, things that shape why we think things, you know, traumatic things can affect that especially. But there's a reason why someone gets to the point of like solely watching Fox News, solely supporting Trump, wanting to build the wall, becoming ravenous about it, right? Or solely supporting, I don't know, Hillary Clinton or, you know, woke movements. There's something that brings them to that. As a sociologist, I mean, or I'm not a sociologist, but as a lot of like sociologists I've read or listened to or been taught by, they would attribute that you know, not solely, but almost entirely to the environment. And I think the political landscape today gives credence to that. Um, yeah, so I'd say that's my take. People don't come to that by just natural instinct. Social media, other forms of manipulation, whether it really is, you know, evil or it's just unintentional um, through like Facebook or other means. Um, they, they, they come to those decisions based off of that manipulation. I don't think there's any other way that that happens. I, I can't think of any other way that that happens. I claim that it's a failure of social pressure. It is a, a danger of disassociation. And I don't mean clinical disassociation, but, it, you know, disassociating through the Internet. I don't even just mean algorithms here. I mean just being anonymized or even just not being physically face-to-face -face talking to another human has an impact because you know everyone has that uncle who believes something wild or or they they're big fans of Q or you know um, they ever since they found out Hillary Clinton has hot sauce in her purse they put hot sauce in their purse too to be more inclusive right everyone has this aunt or uncle right but when you talk to them to your point they don't really talk like that you know sometimes they'll they'll make a sly comment like because someone else in the family would say oh didn't you all hear this person won and they'll kind of puff under their breath and get all pissy but they won't express these views in the same way as they would in some 
you know, some 4chan group or on Reddit. It's just not something that happens. And with the failure of pushback allows for radicalization. And it's funny because I have a suspicion that a lot of the same people, just to take one example here, who would support Q would be almost exactly the same people who would say, look how radicalized the left is because they're offended by everything. They're not able to be pressured by social pressures. But I would say the same thing's happening to the Q folk. There's no friend group that goes out bowling one day, and then you say something really stupid, and then your friends go, that's a stupid thing to say, and then you reconsider because you were being an idiot. There's less of that happening, and maybe COVID plays a role, maybe just advancements in, in, in global technologies and communication play a role. But I, I always claimed that it was the algorithms who were at fault here, and I still believe that to some extent. But I really think just the disassociation, not even the anonymity, just not physically talking to another human and getting that emotional, guttural, instant feedback of your friends criticizing you because you said something dumb. I think even at that low of a level, we are losing something innately human that is allowing us to radicalize. Mm. Yeah, I, I think the idea of lack of pushback against certain ideas, I think that brings up the idea of identity politics and how the right kind of weaponize that against the left to say, well, you know, they're, they're doing all these things, but they succumb to the same thing too, right? Everyone, I mean, it's, it's human of us to form identities and then form groups based on those and then have our values as an extension of that. It's, it's inherent in both groups, you know, the left will use identities of race and class and whatever right but the right will use religion as an identity all the time to uphold their traditional values and to uphold all these things right for them i guess like i can't help but see the hypocrisy on both sides when that occurs right and again there's there's no pushback against that you know the daily wire for example ben shapiro like will make identity politics like he will make claims like that that i'm like you're you're going against what you're, you know, you usually, you know, bash on. Um, the entire Daily Wire will do that, uh, Matt Walsh or whoever, right? Like that to me is a problem. That to me signifies that, I don't know if they're just grifting, they're just doing it for money or those on the left are also doing it for money or whatever, but there's a severe lack of discourse. Again, Ben Shapiro, just as an example, used to be like this debater, but I haven't seen him debate anyone in how many years because, you know, he's making that good money doing his show and everyone listens and he doesn't have to debate anyone, right? But the lack of debate or discourse makes me concerned about how many people are continuing to just blindly follow these ideas without challenging themselves. I used to watch Ben Shapiro a lot and I used to be like, oh, okay, what he says makes a lot of sense. I'm going to agree with him. And then there got to a point where I was like, well, I found some conflicting information. I'm going to separate, separate myself a little bit. And now that I've come back to some things that he said, I'm like, mm, I don't know if I can really listen to him anymore all that much. So the problem is that I don't think a lot of people are doing that. I'm not saying I'm special, but I think it begs the question, is discourse really a good way 
to avoid extremism, like putting ideas in. So this is a, a big reason why people are like promote uh, proponents of free speech on the internet, right? Like the ideas that the ideas, good ideas will stick and bad ideas won't. But as we've seen, you know, conspiracies and some horrible ideas still seem to stick even in free discourse. And it doesn't seem like often um, confirmation bias, for example, showing someone contradictory sources will even embolden them stronger in their belief. It seems like that's so prevalent online. So I do question the nature of discourse and its ability to quell conspiracy or quell disinformation because I don't, I don't think it works like that anymore with the internet. I think it emboldens people in some ways. Is online communication actually discourse? And this might sound dumb, but hear me out. Because discourse is, let's say, you know, Google will say, uh, written or spoken word, right? Something like that. I'm not sure we can categorize the internet as this kind of discourse. Because when you're debating somebody, let's say, you come in fairly well-read, you're knowledgeable, you've had to form your own conclusions based on the best information you could find. But you don't have the ability to just Google something that in 15 seconds at a first glance will seem to show your opinion. But Google now has so many articles and so much data. And anyone who knows anything about statistics knows you have to know a lot about those statistics to realize what it's actually telling you. Because it can look like it's telling you any number of things based on how you categorize it, how you graph it, how you organize it, what kind of chart you use, how you delineate your research methodology. I mean, all of these kinds of things can show you any number of things. And the ability to, at your fingertips, have bookmarked 15, 30, 100 different articles that, if you read them for five seconds, will seem to tell your side of the story. You now have a breakdown in what people are calling discourse. I'm not convinced that's discourse. It is its own kind of it's not even conversation. I mean, what are the facts? What are the facets of a conversation? It's dialogue. It's uh, interpreting what someone's saying. It's uh, repeating back to them what they say or, or, or giving counter arguments. That's not even happening online. It's a whole new thing that I don't even know that we have a good word for. So uh, I found that I don't want to get lost in the quote unquote journey to expand discourse if all I'm doing is going online, platforming people who can type faster than I can on Google, and you're actually not having real debate. Uh, do you see what I'm, uh, what the distinction I'm trying to make there? Yeah, I, I guess I would call it, I guess the right kind of discourse would be good faith, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's a good faith effort from both people to come and discuss things and have their mind changed. I mean, that's, that's the whole idea, right? I think the most important part is being willing to have your mind changed, but let's be honest, how much has your mind actually changed from discourse, like good discourse often, you know, like we're having right now, we both share points about things. We may push back on some things, may agree on some things, but we're not going to come out of this with widely different beliefs, right? I don't think that's the idea of good faith discourse. Um, I think the idea is, I mean, at least in this day and age, is to just be able to have a successful conversation without it imploding, without anything going wrong. 
seems like that's the standard now or the criteria. Um, but yeah, when you look online, you look at YouTube comments or even Reddit comments or whatever, it's, it's plagued by a lack of good discourse. I've attempted and I've tried to do online discourse in maybe one out of 10 times. I'll be like, okay, that went all right. But most of the time you're left feeling like, well, we both just talked past each other. And yeah, again, who's the quiz? quickest to link an article to something and you lose right in that moment you lose because you got to take the time to read the article and you got to next thing you know they got six more articles and so that's the problem is that we're relying on people who aren't experts to read what experts have to say about something and they can interpret that however they want and the only way you can catch them on what they did is by reading it yourself and pointing it out but by that time they've already linked you and sent you all these studies on 20 more things so that you disproving one of their studies doesn't disprove all of them. And so the issue comes there. As a sociology major, it is a little frustrating when there are people who misinterpret analysis or use it for to win an argument or use it in the wrong way or don't even understand the basics of it, but think that they can read it or think that they know more than the researchers. Um, yeah, it's 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 frustrating. You find a lot of that on the internet. I think the internet has given a voice to a lot of people who, again, don't understand what they're looking at or what they're doing, but have enough knowledge to come to some sort of conclusion as, you know, untruthful as that may be. So it's true. The internet shouldn't be looked at as a great example of discourse. Often it's not the best discourse happens, you know, face to face or, at least in a setting where both people are willing to talk and have their ideas challenged or critiqued. Um, but that's the issue, right? Is that lack of good discourse then, right? Or good faith leads to um, some, some pretty crazy beliefs. And what you said that it seems today the goal of every conversation, particularly online, is to just not kill each other. That is not good enough. That's not a good goal. That should be a foundational requisite coming into any any level of dialogue right that's a requirement for the for the for democracy to function i mean this is not a goal of any kind but i'm still hopeful though whether forcefully or otherwise because i mean i've seen it happen let's look at you can look at old debates online maybe 15 20 year old videos or re-uploads on youtube that you don't see any of these today not just because of covid but even before covid where you would have an audience go in, let's say a debate on religion and, and atheism or something, and they would have to fill out a card that says, what's your belief, how strongly is it? And then some, you know, 30% of the people, just picking a random number, uh, were on the fence. And then at the end, they take a second set of cards, they hand them out, and they say, are you swayed one way or another? Not have you drastically changed your mind. It takes lots of conversation to really understand your opinions. At least it should, in theory. But was one side more compelling than the other? Did one side win the debate? Or are you more persuaded? Or what are you going to research more now that you've listened? And there would be oftentimes double-digit changes in the percentage of people in the audience who said, oh, actually, I came in kind of, ignorance, uh, kind of ignorant about this and I really did change my mind. I still think that's wholly possible in our minds. We just have to either get rid of the internet space in this capacity and, and only do this kind of debate in person, let's say, 
or what I think is more possible, although probably a thousand times more difficult, is finding a way to do this online. Finding a way, maybe Web3 and how it's decentralized allows some kind of uh, innate uh, ability to have better guidelines around conversation that don't infringe on your free speech liberties. Who knows? I'm just throwing shots in the dark here. But we definitely have the psychological capability to slowly change our minds without thinking we're always right. And the real question is, of course, how do you do that in this day and age? But I am wholly optimistic that it's possible. Yeah, I would say that's possible. Um, I don't know. I guess it's like, yeah, how do you, if we could just reset the internet and with the knowledge that we have now and be able to structure it better. Because I, I don't see, I don't know if I see that good regulation occurring where you still don't get a bunch of misinformation or a bunch of bots or a bunch of, you know, here and there saying this and that to people. And to me, I think the, the biggest problem is laziness, which I fall into as well. Laziness when it comes to information, we don't want to have to spend, you know, however much time listening to, to long debates or listening to that with our short attention spans now to where even the good debates on YouTube, I don't, I don't feel like they're viewed that much or I don't, or very often, or I don't think that they have that much attention. I think that's the issue is that we just don't have the attention span anymore. And I don't, I don't know if, even if you did have, you know, groups, like you mentioned, we go back to the old style of that. There's still a niche group of people who have been willing to have their mind change. Now you have the internet that's connected millions upon millions of people. It's in everyone's lives. What is that group going to change? You know, like in terms of say voting, for example, if we had everyone who, you know, like a few centuries ago, when those who could vote were those who had education and such, and those who didn't have that couldn't. Um, how could we do that nowadays to get better voting procedures without like obviously kicking people out for just being dumb or being whatever, but actually bringing a good voting pool to the table of people who have researched and people who have viewed debate and have had these opportunities to change their minds. like. I don't know if I'm very optimistic about seeing a possibility of an internet where that occurs at such a large scale. There are communities on YouTube that do engage in good debate and um, good discussions about all sorts of political or religious issues, but their view counts aren't very large. And I think that's because it's, it's niche. Like, I don't know if your average person will care enough to do that you know, we, we have some time to do that. Right. And that's, it's fun to research and, and look up things, but, you know, another person who is working and doing whatever with their life, they might not care or want to care. And so I don't know, I guess I'm not too hopeful about the way that this transpires in the next few decades. I think there are some great opportunities for really good spaces for discourse, but I don't know. When it comes to discourse, I'm an OG. I like to talk to people in person or like, you know, one-on-one -on, -one on Zoom or something like that. Um, I just, I don't know if, if people really have the time or care to do that that much. And I, I imagine that 
that'll go away as I age too and get into my career and so on. So until very recently, I would have agreed with you, but I think whether you like the guy or not, Joe Rogan figured something out. If you can sit down and listen to Elon Musk for four and a half hours, then this isn't just niche anymore. Now, maybe to your point, you have to be careful how you approach this because that's not structured as a debate. So maybe we've become less formal as a society and so far, that's just expressed itself as short attention. But this is this is huge. This is getting millions and millions of views, and people are really listening to it. Maybe it needs to be less formal. Maybe it needs to be casual. Maybe sometimes the best scientist is one that really is the best communicator, can make jokes and be funny and be approachable, can have a glass of whiskey with Joe Rogan. Maybe that's the new future of scientists. Of course, they also have to be very well-read and, and experts in their field, but Maybe it's just a new impetus of communication that needs to be done differently because this kind of long-form media is working. Now, is it long-form debate? Not necessarily. You're right. But I think it's close enough that just with some careful recalibration, it can still be equally enjoyable and equally accessible. And even in this reality, this, this 21st century can be used to help people form their opinions, not by just bringing on guests that you agree with. It has to be people you disagree with, and the old school style of discourse has to occur, but it's just being videotaped for the four-hour conversation. You know what I mean? I, I am hopeful for that reason, uh, if not that reason alone. But again, it has to be done carefully, but I, I, I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm just telling myself I'm hopeful because without optimism, what's the future going to look like? But I, I really do believe in my heart of hearts there is a a piece that can be held onto. And podcasting, for example, is an indication that there is still that psychological bandwidth in our minds that hasn't been lost by our short attention span, algorithm-driven world. Yeah, I mean, I'd say I could generally agree with that. Um, talking about Joe Rogan... Um, I mean, there has been recent controversy just as this, these past few days. Sure. See where that goes. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I would hope, I actually haven't checked out his podcast in a while, but I would hope that he's been having some more dissenting voices because I do know that he's very hard-lined on some COVID issues. And I, I'm not going to be that guy who's like, you know, there's a lot of Reddit posts that, will post anything he says and then everyone will just like jump to his throat about it. But um, I would, I would hope that he could get some more like epidemiologists on there um, to discuss those issues. Cause again, he did really well at the beginning. There was a virologist I think he had on at the beginning of COVID and I watched that one that was really, really good. Um, and it wasn't politicized because, well, COVID hadn't been politicized yet. But I think since it's been politicized, there is there has become more issue with that. He's become a little more hardlined in some of his stances, um, being obviously against the the current mainstream beliefs. But um, also just having people on. I don't know if he's had recent epidemiologists on or virologists or whatnot but i i'd like to see that um yeah i mean from there I, i'd say i generally agree with you it's good to be optimistic i i hope to see that in the future that's all i can say 
Well, I'd say we agree there. We can hope for the best and only hope more conversations like this can happen and hopefully people start to uh, or continue to be interested in them because having the conversation is one thing, but other people need to have them too. You know, the ethos of conversation needs to change if we're not going to be able to change the technology, which I don't foresee the technology going back at any point. So really, it's just conversation that propels us forward and you're a great person to have them with. So I appreciate being able to talk to you again and see where your opinions have changed, where they've stayed the same. And, you know, hopefully we can all just grow as people as we learn more and more. Yeah, no, thank you. I appreciate it. It's been good. It's been good to talk about this stuff. You don't get this very often. Um, even at college, you know, kind of like we mentioned, you don't you don't always get that. There's some moments where you do, but um, it's refreshing to have that. I've always been into politics to some extent, not an extreme amount, but I've always been interested in social issues considering my major as well. Um, and I mean, it's it's always just, it, it's, it's good to talk to someone who, you know, doesn't cut to your throat immediately or, you know, get overly emotional. It's okay to get emotional in discussions, but um, it's easier to discuss things when there's, you know, good faith discourse occurring, so. Absolutely. Well, thanks for coming on. I appreciate you, Mateo. Yeah, thank you.